Now, I have the pleasure to introduce an amazing member of our, of our church here. Mr. Tim, would you come up and share a word with us? Hey. Good morning, everybody. One thing about being above 60 now, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about dates and events and stuff like that. Now, I don't really know if they happened in that time frame. I mean, Angelo, who I'll introduce in a minute, is much more exacting than me. So, but, so if I say it's about five years ago, it could have been anywhere between three and six, you know? <laughs> but it just kind of all rolls together. So, um, Ken asked me to talk about coming out at work and what was the journey to do that. So that's what we're going to do today. That would have been so much more difficult without the woman standing next to me. Uh, Dave talked the last week about some of his heroes, and it was great. This is one of my heroes. Her name is Angela. She is, I work with her. She is so smart and so successful. She's worked at a number of Fortune 100 companies. Um, and she's, what I respect most about her is her, how courageous she is and how resilient she is on a day-to-day -day basis with all the stuff that she has to deal with from a dominant culture standpoint. She's, my, she's a constant teacher to me, and I've learned more about her, uh, from her about experience that people of color have to deal with on a daily basis. And not just people of color, disabled um, people, the whole range of groups and coworkers that at least we work with. This isn't a speech for people to come out. Coming out is a very personal decision, and it can only be made if and when people feel safe in the environment that they're in. And as you can see, as you will see, I've worked with, at my company about 40 years now, so a long time, and this is one, one of the hazy parts. I think I came out around five years ago, but it's kind of a blur. So it took me a while to feel safe. But yeah, 30, yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> so why did it take me so long? I guess I've been in a position where I see the inner workings of our company at the highest levels, and I have for a number of years. So what we do is we watch people. We watch what they say or what they don't say. If they raise a joke, that's inappropriate. We watch people who like uh, contradict that and stand up, you know, and say that's not appropriate. That's at least how I gauged whether or not it was safe for me to come out. And it wasn't for a number of years. So what happened? We, um, our board appointed a new CEO, which happens to be a woman. And she, from the very start, championed uh, co-workers, uh, all co-workers, and being able to bring their whole self to work. 
you know, we all have those, if you work in companies, all those policies that, you know, we'll do and we won't do this. Well, we actually dusted them off. And we started living and expecting people to live in a way that would build uh, real inclusion in the workplace. We also promoted Angela to be Director of Diversity, Inclusion, and uh, Talent Acquisition. And she has worked with me ever since. I hope you get a chance or at some point to meet Angela. She leads absolutely from her heart. Um, and she's absolutely committed to equity in the workplace and bringing our whole selves to work. And she was part of what inspired me to do the same, to bring my whole self to work. I, allies are important too. I had two senior vice presidents, one who was my boss, who knew about me and my situation, and were with me through this entire journey of coming out, which I, was helpful and I really appreciated. About the same time, uh, my company sent me to a nine-month development program. Okay, so I like really needed development, you know. <laughs> but actually, didn't you go too at a different point? I had a breakdown. I had a breakdown at work and I was talking to Tim about um, work-life balance and, you know, for an African-American and a female in the workplace, you know, I thought I had to work twice as hard, be twice as smart, so I never got a break. And he threw his... So he threw his paper down, his pen down, and he's like, you're going to gap training. And so I went through the <laughs> nine-month development course. Which was really good. So I learned there, and I, I guess this is kind of obvious, but it wasn't to me at the time. I learned that how I think and what I tell myself can determine what I end up being. All those inner voices all those things that we mull around in our head day in and day out. One part of the course was about developing a stand for ourselves, which I did. My stand was, and still is today, that I am bold, authentic, connected to myself and to others. Each word, that took weeks for me to think that through, each word has very significant meaning to me in my life. Angela's team then, soon after I went to GAP, facilitated the National Coming Out Conference call that year for our company, where I decided that I was going to live my stand of being bold and authentic. Um, so I came out that day to many co-workers as well as some officers who were on that call. As I as it turns out, I think I'm the highest-ranking co-worker at my company to ever do so. Making that stand through this whole journey was really important to me, along with the support of others that I work with. I constantly thought about that stand, um, and it motivated me to take additional action. So soon after the coming out call, maybe it was soon after, maybe it was a year, I don't know. <laughs> But um, I came out to all of my 200 HR colleagues at our company. And um, some of you won't find this surprising, but I was talking about my plans to marry Rich. And of course, again, some of you who know me, I kind of broke down in like happy tears about, about that. 
But it was very vulnerable for me at the time, and I felt very lonely at the end. Um, after I did that, the, the things that the thing that made me feel good was I had I had taken a stand to be myself as I had dictated to myself, so that helped. As well as don't ever forget to thank people and give them hugs or whatever when they're sharing something vulnerable. It's really important that that people feel like they're supported, and and I experienced that at that meeting. Um, after this, I was on a roll then. <laughs> so it was like, I decided I was going to go to all of the operating vice president's leadership meetings. So I worked with these guys mainly, some women. These are the folks that run our power plants, and they like work in the field. So you know, you kind of get a picture. Um, but they're but I wanted them, I had worked with most of them, I wanted them to hear from me before the grapevine about what I did and the reasons I did it. And the, um, it was very, overall it was very supportive. I mean, these, you know, plant guys coming up and giving me a big hug and shaking my hand. And so that helped me also then continue to do those type of leadership meetings throughout because I, I have a lot of capital at my company just from working there over the years, and I wanted to make it easier for others to bring their full self to work. Um, so I made a per, uh, plan to hit most of those leadership meetings, and overall it's been great. So at the end of the day, and then I'm going to turn it over to Angela, I'm so glad that I found the courage to do that. It was the right time, I had the right support, I had the right training. Um, I think I had started attending this church at around that same point, so there was a spiritual support too. And now I uh, can live authentically in each and every area of my life. So, Angel? Good morning, everyone. I am um, so grateful to be here with each and every one of you this morning and particularly beside Tim this morning. So what Tim did not realize is he also encouraged me to come out in a very different way. So I thought I had been living my life very bold um, and unapologetic in my truth um, and encouraging others along the way to do the same. There's this thing uh, with people of color and their hair. Um, and as um, Tim talked about, I worked in HR, worked in the legal department uh, for many years of my career and heard the stories from others. You know, this person, you know, is very talented and, you know, but for their hair and if they would just straighten their hair, if they would just take those braids out, they could get promoted or they could be in a leadership position. And so over the years, hearing conversations and stories from leaders and people that I respected in the workplace really brought, and I didn't understand, I thought it was I needed to assimilate um, in order to move my career. What I didn't realize is that I was actually covering who I was. And so for a long time, um, I wore wigs to work uh, because I did not think my natural hair would be accepted. I didn't think 
um, that you know I would be promoted, that I could aspire to uh, the leadership position that I wanted if I was my authentic self. So essentially, my authentic self was not good enough for corporate America, is what had been reinforced for me for a long time. And so when Tim came out very publicly, it wasn't planned, um, very personal and vulnerable, he gave me the courage to shed my wig. So as you can see, I fully stand boldly at myself today. And he, it wasn't, you know, it was learning from him. And I think we've been um, a part in partnership um, in this journey along the way, ever since we met each other. It was, it, was, it was just, I think it was a spirit connection that we had with one another. And so he provided, well, he didn't know it, the safety for me to really live in my truth um, and to be vulnerable in a way that, you know, I may not be accepted here, I may not, and that was okay for me. It was a risk I was willing to take. Um, and once I saw, you know, Tim, um, you know, I just knew I had to. I couldn't continue to stand there and encourage others to be their authentic self if I, in fact, was hiding something about who I was. So, Tim, thank you for giving me the opportunity to walk in my truth um, and stand boldly in who I am. So, thank you. Lord. I mean, don't, like, I feel so honored that we would be able to hear those stories, you know, like, what a privilege it is for us to hear those stories, and like, I was like, oh God, I want to be worthy enough to be a place where people can tell stories like that. I want to live up to that, you know, that uh, trust. Anyway, we're in a, been in a series on uh, Jesus. My name's Ken, by the way, Ken Wilson. Uh, I'm co-pastor with Emily Swan, who's doing some uh, elder care in her home state uh, with her with her honey, Rachel. So she'll be back next week. Um, and we've been in a little series called Jesus, Gender, and Toxic Approaches to Masculinity. And um, today, we're closing out the series, and, and I, I wanted to present a vision of God um, that I think is implicit and empowers us to get over the effects of things like toxic approaches to gender or, or socially enforced views of things like masculinity. Uh, and, and it's this, it's something that's like under under-noticed in, in our tradition, it, it's, it, God doesn't simply tell us who we are, supposed to be, and then it's our job to like conform to that external image, but our tradition says that the divine image is actually already in all of us, and the stories that describe God at work interacting with human beings, and even in the process of creating things, we see a God who allows all of creation to be itself and even in some sense to reveal itself to God. That the creation reveals itself to God in the early stories of creation. So there's so much more mutuality in the human divine connection than we often realize. You know, in the, in the Jewish tradition, there's this strand um, that God as creator had to contract in order to create. Like he filled all things, and so in order to create, he had to contract in order to make space 
for the creation so that the creation in that sense involves some like divine self-emptying just like you know if you if you're gonna listen to someone you have to like stop talking <laughs> and you really also have to stop thinking your own thoughts in order to receive their words and hear what they're thinking that there's something like this going on in the creation stories um, and Jesus, of course, is reflecting. He's stepping into this tradition in Philippians 2 where it says he didn't account equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself. So it's a creative thing to empty yourself. So in the first creation poem of Genesis, you know, God speaks things into being. You're probably familiar with Genesis 1, basically. But the language that is used has a passive quality to it that's often not noticed. For example, it says, and God said, let there be light, let there be sky, let there be day, let there be night, let there be swarming creatures, all of that, let there be. So it's not actually like an abracadabra moment. It's not like a, a command light to come into being. It's almost as if, it's like, if light wishes to appear, it may now. Um, and, and the poem in Genesis 1 is written almost as if God doesn't know what comes into being is exactly until he sees it. And then God knows it. So in the first act of creation, and God saw the light, that it was good. So light may come into being, light appears, and then, and God saw the light, that it was good. It's like he didn't know it was good until he saw that it was good, if we're taking the words on their face. Um, God has to see the light before God knows the light is good. You know that gospel song, I saw the light, I saw the light. It's like God is participating in that experience of like seeing the light, like we see the light and it's something new to God and God says, oh, my, oh, it's good. Um, God in the, in the first creation uh, story is kind of like a, like a choir director. My, uh, my wife, Julia, was a choir director for uh, uh, 24 years, actually, here at St. Clair's. Or I think of uh, like a symphony conductor in the same way, that they, they, they're signaling. They have this like relationship, mutual relationship with their choirs, and they're signaling various things, like the conductor might signal the French horns, and the, then the French horns come in, and then the conductor, if the conductor likes what she hears, she's like smiling at the French horns and like, Oh, and like Julia has the most expressive face when she's directing her choir. It's like this, that, and then they, and then everyone's like, they're like, you know, loving her. They're like, they're like in a face connection kind of experience with her, and she's signaling, and they're responding, and she's loving what she hears, and you can see it on her face. And this is the kind of thing that's going on in Genesis 1. Um, the second creation story has a has a similar kind of pattern, but we're not going to go into it. But then later in Genesis, you have, you have weird things. Like God's friend Abraham learns uh, that God has a plan to punish the violence of two towns under certain conditions. He's going he's to execute this punishment. And Abraham, here's the plan. Abraham's God's friend. And says, you can't do that. 
that that wouldn't be just. Would the God of justice not be just? And then Abraham negotiates with God and changes the condition, and, and Abraham adjusts to, uh, I mean, God adjusts to Abraham's perspective. There, there are actually several times throughout the Hebrew scriptures where God changes God's mind in response to a human appeal. And I think there is something like this that is reflected in our reading today um, from John chapter 1 when Jesus is calling his first followers. I think Nathaniel is follower number 5 in John 1. And it, the, the episode goes... Um, you know, uh, Philip has followed Jesus a little bit. And he says to his friend Nathaniel, come see um, Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet that Mo Moses foretold. And Nathaniel uh, pushes back, can anything good come from Nazareth? Just like they had their local regional prejudices. And then shortly thereafter, when, when Jesus sees Nathaniel, he says, here's a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false in whom there's no guile, who's totally trustworthy. And despite Nathaniel's just earlier snarkiness, Jesus like sees this good in Nathaniel, names it, and it's also the same good that Nathaniel sees in himself. Because Nathaniel responds, we just met, how did you know me? It's like Jesus gives him a fantastic compliment. He says, how did you know me? <laughs> He doesn't dismiss it or brush it off. He like totally receives it. And he, he affirms Jesus' affirmation of him. Um, here's an even more extreme example. This is, this is like a text in the Gospels that when pastors and priests and whatever, it comes up in the lectionary, they say, I just, I'm sick that Sunday. Jesus comes to the border of a Canaanite territory, the Syrophoenician region. There's been a lot of bad history between Israel and the Canaanites, a lot of trauma between them. A Canaanite woman, um, probably seeing him as he's approaching the border area, cries out to her, to him, like really loudly. She's yelling at him to heal her daughter who's tormented. And Jesus, it says, just he doesn't respond. The disciples, hearing the woman, urge Jesus to send the woman away. You know, this is ridiculous. Send her away. And Jesus says something that doesn't quite make sense to their concern. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that answer makes sense if they were asking him to help her. But they're saying, send her away. And he says, well... I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you know, we forget that Jesus was human. Like, Jesus came into his understanding of his mission and himself and his identity like human beings do, like gradually, progressively. Jesus didn't know the like, whole plan in advance, I don't think, if he's a human being. Like, he, he walked into it and there were stages of his understanding that developed as it developed. There's no indication that Jesus in the Gospels like had a big emphasis on the Gentiles, you know? Like most Jesus followers are Gentiles now, so we think we're the center of the universe and surely Jesus was like into us and the whole thing he did was to take this like, this like very narrow-minded Jewish religion and make it available to all of us Gentiles. Like isn't Jesus our special Gentile friend? You just don't see that in the Gospels. So, when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep 
of Israel. That was like his understanding of his mission. Now, when the woman hears this, she's like sensing some ambivalence in Jesus and she shifts her strategy, I think, and she comes closer It says she kneels down and she says, Lord, help me. So before she's just been yelling at him, now she says, Lord, help me. And then Jesus answers, it's not fair to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. It's like, wow. This was his understanding. This was like a parable. This was like a proverb that had been, had been circulating and in response to her. He says this thing. And then she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs give the straps from the table. And then because of her persistence and her verbal skills, like she did like a judo move on him. He was, he was bringing out these different proverbial sayings that he had heard that had shaped his understanding. And she takes it and she just redirects the energy of it. She doesn't oppose it. She redirects the energy of it and, and she's got him. And for the first time, it feels like he sees her. And he says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. And then he turns to the disciples and said, I I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. So he has his like moment of awakening that has been provoked by this Canaanite woman. So there are three ways I think that all of this kind of uh, suggests for us to, um, what do we do to like throw off the yoke, say of toxic masculinity if we've been affected by that and it's affected probably everyone in different ways man woman non-binary just everyone's been affected by this thing at work in the culture well and now I would would uh, address men in particular it would be to enjoy embrace the joy of being wrong when a woman sets you straight like embrace the joy of being wrong when a woman sets you straight Toxic masculinity is about muting the voice of women. And this is part of what's happening to the Canaanite woman. Um, At first, Jesus is like conflicted, confused. What am I supposed to do about this Gentile who's approaching me? What's his obligation to the Gentile? His guy friends are urging him to send her away. He repeats proverbs he's learned from youth, and she artfully turns them against him. Then he's like, oh my God, I didn't see you. We didn't see you. Now I see you. Look at this woman. Listen to this woman. You know, culture is the nature of culture to exert its pressure on the participants of the culture tacitly. Tacitly, meaning without words, without spelling it out. And so if we're to be human, is to be part of a human culture and is to be tacitly shaped by that culture in order to, in other words, we just, we can't help absorbing what it is that the culture, not only explicitly, but also tacitly wants us to do and be like, that's part of being human. You know, the most progressive um, white person has absorbed racism, right? I mean, because we live in a racist culture, you cannot help, everybody absorbs racism in a racist culture. 
And as men, we have tacitly absorbed, even if we're feminists, the idea that we're supposed to be right. Like, we're supposed to be right. That's like our, we have like an extra duty to be right. And our voice is supposed to be heard. Like, we have an advantaged voice. We just absorb that. Every time you're in a meeting and, and it's mainly the men talking and the women are being quiet, you're tacitly, tacitly absorbing. This is the way things are supposed to be. Well, Jesus, I think, had his tacitly absorbed cultural bias until he heard this woman and then he saw her and then he saw the light and he experienced a kind of freedom, like a, the joy of being wrong and seeing something new. Remember, if you read the, um, the immediately preceding chap chapter, Jesus had had like a bad week. He was worn out. I mean, he had elders who were, who were criticizing him and he was in disputes with them. Then his disciples are not getting it and he's in dispute with them. I picture him kind of worn out, kind of a little bit depressed, probably hangry. And then after this interaction with this Canaanite woman, Jesus is like energized. He's like seen something that he hadn't seen before and he's excited by what he's seen. That's the joy of being wrong and, and seeing something about reality more clearly. There's, there's something exciting about that. But you have to be able to kind of shed all that. My job is to be right because I'm the man, you know to experience the joy that Jesus experienced, the joy of being wrong and seeing things more clearly. The second thing would be to, just to practice, again, this would probably be especially for men, practice being non-anxious and unafraid around human emotion. Like, practice that. Um, I, I have had the experience of being part of a staff that's all female except me. And the women on our staff, like, I would say they probably have, like, extraordinary level, each one, of emotional intelligence. But I wouldn't describe them as, like, particularly expressive emotionally, but compared to men, more expressive. And I've just been immersed in this culture now for five years at our staff meetings, and I've watched people, like, express emotion in a way that wouldn't have happened if it were an all-male kind of group or it was a dominant male kind of group. And I've seen how people respond to one another and how at ease they are with that. And I've learned from that process. Oh, I also learned from having um, lived with many women over the years. <laughs> um, uh, daughters and wife and all that. But, like, you don't have to be upset with strong emotion. Um, so men... Toxic masculinity teaches men to mute their own expression of emotion, except anger, like that's okay. You can have anger in many different shades, that's the manly emotion, but other emotions, no, not so much. And then if you, if you believe that about yourself, you're supposed to like push down, you're just naturally, without even thinking, you're going to be shushing anyone who has strong emotion around you. 
Um, there's episode after episode after episode in the Gospels, especially the, the same view Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is encountering a human being who is expressing strong emotion, like Middle Eastern strong emotion. And often the disciples are, want to shush it, and Jesus never does. Like, he, there was something about him, he was just at ease with the emotions around him and with people expressing their emotions in really strong ways. He never shushed it, he just, like, rolled with it, and he was affected by strong emotions. So the one time that we see Jesus weeping, you know, it says, Jesus wept. It was because a woman was weeping and he was in her presence and he was moved by her weeping and he was free to weep, mirroring her. So you actually have to practice being at ease, being non-anxious around strong emotions. Like, oh, you're, you're sad, what's, what's going on? Or, just relax, everything's fine, I don't, I'm, I don't have to fix this, I don't have to make this go away. I can, I can relax into what's happening. And then this is the third thing. It's more the theological, spiritual piece of it, based on this vision of God I've presented. Lean into the God who makes space for you as you are, and don't be afraid to take the light in yourself. Lean into the God who makes space for you as you are, and don't be afraid to take the light in yourself. I'm going to tell a couple stories from my own experience about this. Um, in the months before my father's death, he died of cancer, so we know his death was coming. I had a strange feeling that his death would impart some gift to me. And when I first had that feeling, it was like I felt guilty. I didn't mention that feeling to anybody. But it was persistent. It wouldn't go, go away. And it just kept coming. And it got to the point where I knew it to be so. My father's death was going to impart some gift to me. Um, after he died, I fell into a, like, I would say my first recognized um, depressive period. It lasted for some months. I couldn't pray like I had prayed before, which took a lot of energy. And I was in my dad's apartment um, uh, over on Plix and Nixon and Plymouth area there. I was, lived in some like low-income housing areas. And I was clearing out his books, and I saw one that was Beginning to Pray by Anthony Bloom, an Orthodox bishop physician during World War II in France, part of the French resistance. And something made me just take that book and not pitch it like the rest of them. And I, I read that little book, probably because I was having to trouble praying. And it was like, I need to go back to the basics. And Anthony Bloom in that little book introduced me to silence as a form of prayer. And the thing of it, people experience um, depression in many different ways. The way I was experiencing the depression was kind of like really low energy. So I would have these periods where I'd just be sitting there and be like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm not even sure I'm thinking anything. I would just like be sitting there kind of, I would say stupidly in the old sense of the word stupid, of like unfeeling or not a lot going on. 
And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to make that my prayer. So for 10 minutes, I would just let myself sit there kind of in a kind of stupid silence. And there was a moment in one of those periods when there was like a, a little shift in my internal atmosphere. And inside my head, I heard a whisper that said, Ken, meet Ken. And I knew that was the spirit. And I felt embarrassed. I, did, I didn't feel embarrassed in the moment, but normally th that kind of thing would be something I would tell like a couple of friends or certainly Nancy, my now late wife. I didn't tell anyone this for actually several years until I was in spiritual direction and it came up. And the most embarrassing thing about it I actually didn't even mention to my spiritual director. I think I'm sharing it now. Um, I didn't share with Julia um, yesterday. The thing that was embarrassing about that was that the Ken that I felt the Spirit introduced me to, it, it just feels weird to even say it, um, felt like the Ken I secretly knew and liked. And I realized it was also the can I tended to mute with others for fear of being like rejected or not accepted or not like fitting into the group. And that had more to do with my social setting at the time, the Christian community I was part of at the time, and like no negative humor and all these. And it was like, oh, I was like, oh, oh, I better if if they really knew what I'm really how I really would like to be, I have to like tone myself down. Um, but that was the Ken that I was introduced to, and I liked that Ken. Now, I would say that experience, which would have been in two, the year 2000, that's what made it possible for me to start like moving beyond my evangelical constraints. I was a pastor in an evangelical denomination, and I didn't even realize it, but I was under certain constraints, and I, was, I could trace from that period on I was just, I trusted my instincts a lot more. Like, I, I thought climate change was real, and I, I, the people around me, like, were all nervous about climate change for some reason, and I was like, oh, climate change is real, and we gotta do something about it, or science, I like science, I like evolution, I would start talking about that, people would leave the church, other people would come, it, was, it would be, make people anxious or whatever, but I was like, no, I, I can trust my instincts. Now, if you're, in that kind of a evangelical box as a pastor, and you're going to change your mind on LGBTQ, you better line up your ducks. <laughs> you better do your homework. And I hadn't lined up my ducks. I hadn't done the homework. I hadn't done the study. I had just absorbed tacitly um, my environment on that question. But before I did all the theological work and the scriptural work, I'm looking at a pastor who's been through this process, um, my gut knew that the policies were wrong. My gut knew the policies were wrong. And part of me was terrified by that knowledge because I knew what it implied if I gave it any space. But before I started working out the theology, I felt a kernel of internal freedom, and the freedom was, if I study the text, 
And I'm convinced that they are supporting applying this stuff to the LGBT people I know. I have the option of conscientious objection, and I'm going to take it. Like, the text may be say that, the texts are wrong, I'm not going to do that. I had that freedom inside my, like, Ken Ken, <laughs> before I would even let myself do the study. Now, when I did the study, it was like, oh my gosh, this is like a no-brainer. These clobber texts do not apply to the people I know. They apply to a whole different situation, and I didn't even have to face that. But I had that freedom. And what I see in pastors who are not able to follow their hearts is they don't have that freedom of conscientious objection, of saying, even if my tradition, even if I've convinced the tradition is right, but I think it's wrong, I'm not going to do it. And, and the God that I find in the Hebrew Bible is like down with that. It's a, it's a God who like is in a much more mutual relationship with us than we think where God influences us and we influence God. And it's like there's like a dance going on between the human and the divine in the Bible. And let me close with a, something we'll, we'll use for a meditation. Oh, let me make sure that's all that I wanted to say. It better be because the time's up. Yeah, that is. In the book of Revelations, it's a mystical book. It makes no sense unless you understand it mystically. It says, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, and in context that means oppressed people who overcome their oppression. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone, and on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's a mystical thing in there. So Israel's a very rocky place, a lot of stones, a lot of rocks. People knew their stones like flower gardeners know the difference between a gardenia and a petunia, which I don't exactly know. I, I, know, sir, I know granite, I know pudding stone, and I know Petoskey stone. But they knew like all the gemstones, beryl, agate, crystal, a whole bunch of them in the Jewish tradition. There was a different gemstone uh, representing each of the 12 tribes on the breastplate of the high priest as the high priest represented the people in the, in the temple worship. Well, this stone, the word that's translated white I don't think it's a great translation. It's leukos, and it means more like bright or brilliant. Like a, 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 I picture it as a stone that light would shine through and kind of refract all the colors, you know. Um, so what this text is saying is like in the new world that is emerging, coming into being, that we're invited to be part of, we all have a new name that perfectly conveys our true self, and there's no bad or other than us connotations to that name. So my father-in-law, Charles Hutter, his father was named Adolf Hutter. Adolf Hutter, can you be, imagine being a new immigrant from Germany in the 1930s, and your name is Adolf Hutter? Um, Ken. I kind of like the name Ken. It means understanding in the English. In the Scottish, it means handsome. I'll, 
I like that. <laughs> but Ken, everybody knows, is Barbie's boyfriend. <laughs> and so nobody's going to be naming their kid Ken. And I, I totally get it. There's that connotation that's now part of my name. It's like, oh darn, I would have liked the name if it weren't for Barbie's boyfriend. So we're going to get a name that only we know, each of us knows, and God knows, so that in the new order that's coming into being, when we hear, you know, like we're, we're down the street, and we hear this name called out, we, and only we will know, oh, that's me, what does he need now, <laughs> kind of thing. And, and that, that name will be like totally consonant. It'll cohere completely with who we know ourselves to be and who it is that we delight in. And that's the name God will use for each of us. And it'll be like this special, like intimate secret between the divine and each human in the divine image. There's profound mutuality in that picture. So let's use that as our, as our meditation. Why don't you just take a minute and... Um, Try to think for this first minute. Take a couple of deep breaths in through your nose, out through your mouth, longer on the exhale than the inhale. Get comfortable. And try to remember or think about something that you just like. This could be an object. This could be a pet. Hopefully something you don't have like a conflicted relationship with. You're worried about them liking you back, for example. That's not a good example. Like, I have the Fisher Space Pen for $18. I love that pen. And I, I'm thinking about it now, and I just have like feelings. Um, think of something you like, and then just focus on the feelings of like that are around that thing, or that pet, or that person, or that place. Let's do that for a minute. As your mind gets distracted, come back. What's that like feeling like? Okay, that like feeling is now your focus. And now I invite you to shift. Sit with that feeling of like and consider that God has a name for you that will be unveiled. You will like it and it will be this special name only you and God know. And just ponder that but focus on that feeling of like that you have.
Thanks be to God. Amen.